This is Stimulus. Hello, my friends, Rob Borman here, and you are listening to Stimulus, where we deconstruct ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up, think differently. And boy, are we going to do that in spades today with our guest, Christina Shenvey, MD, PhD, and soon to be MBA. It's going to need like a whole <laughs> other page on your resume to fit all your degrees. And Christina, I was, I was looking, I was like, what's new with Shenvey? Newly appointed president of the Association of Professional Women in Medical Sciences. Congratulations. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. I'm excited. Oh, what else is Shenby? What other things is she, <laughs> is she into? I guess germane to this conversation, purveyor of time for your life, where she helps busy professionals manage their time. And we get to benefit from Christina's experience in coaching and counseling professionals. We get to look under the hood of what happens there because there are questions that come up regularly and repeatedly, probably questions you have yourself when it comes to time and life management. And Christina, you sent me three. We were talking about, all right, what are the things that people struggle with, that professionals struggle with? Number one was procrastination. And we had a full podcast on that in August, 2020. I'll put a link in the show notes. You know, if you guys want to get on it, or you know what, actually, I guess, you know what, you can wait till later. You can wait till later to get to it. See. See what we did there? Uh, promoting the procrastination. I don't know about uh, Rob. Not sure I can get behind that. <laughs> All right. So we've got being scattered, too much on my plate, and drowning in a sea of email. Those are going to be the things that we're going to cover. And really repeat offenders for many. I uh, include myself in that. But I want to start off with too much on my plate. Not enough hours in the day. I don't, I'm not, there, there are enough hours in the day, so I'm going to say too much on my plate. And as I was thinking about this last night, nobody starts off when they're born. Nobody starts off as an infant with too much on their life plate. <laughs> it seems like there's kind of this insidious path to get there. Like, how does it happen? I guess I mean, maybe it's a bigger question. Is, you know, why does it happen? Yeah, Rob, this is definitely the number one problem that among the dozens and dozens of mostly physicians, but also other professionals that I've worked with, this is what they come to me with. They say, can you just give me more time? Because I have too much on my plate. And I think about this as primarily a strategy problem. But we're going to go into several different layers with this. So strategy meaning, are you doing the right things? You may be, you know, running 90 miles an hour, driving 90 miles an hour, but are you driving in the right direction? Because you'll feel like, oh my gosh, I'm doing all this stuff, but are you doing the right things? And the problems or the underlying reasons that people end up with too much on their plate, sometimes it's that lack of direction or strategy. They're just saying yes to a lot of things and they really don't know where they're going. Sometimes this is also especially common with emergency physicians is that we just love too many things. Yeah, let's do this educational thing. Sure, I'll help out with that committee. Absolutely, I'll volunteer at this thing. We love too many things and it's very mission driven. A third reason is sometimes we underestimate how long things will take. And there's actually a whole field of study around this. It's called the, uh, the planning fallacy coined by um, Daniel Kahneman and Tversky. But the idea is that we underestimate how long things will take. So we say, sure, I'll help write that paper. And we think it'll take four hours. Instead, it takes 45 hours. The fourth reason is sometimes we say yes to things out of a sense of obligation. We don't want to let someone down. Sure, Rob, I'll do that podcast with you because I feel obligated. That's not how this happened. Did it because I love it. But sometimes we say yes to things that we don't I love. I was, get, I, was get, I was getting a little uncomfortable there for a moment. Right. No, did it because I love it. Sometimes we do things out of a sense of obligation. And then the fifth, which is the most insidious and harder to kind of grapple with, is often we say yes to or we sign up for too many things out of a need to prove ourselves, a need to show our value or to silence that voice in our head that's saying you're not good enough. The yeses stack up like cordwood. And I, you know, as, as you're going through that, the, the thing that really struck me, I think we've probably talked about this briefly before, is that underestimation of how long things will take. And there's also that, you know, when you get asked to do things that are far away, there's kind of like, the, they're like an abstraction 
or maybe it's remote and proximate. I don't know if proximate is the right word or proximal. And you think, oh yeah, I can go speak in Japan and you know, in eight months, yeah, no problem. I mean, that sounds great. And then eight months comes up like, oh my God, I got to travel for all these days. And I got to speak in this. And it's just, you know, this big thing in my life that I didn't even anticipate. It's kind of like seeing a giant wave from a distance. Like, oh, that's, that's nothing. And then you get closer. So, ooh, that's uh, that might little be a little too much for me to handle. <laughs> Absolutely. And in fact, we, we do this with money as well. If you offer people, hey, Rob, do you want $10 today? Or do you want $100 in a year? And many, many people pick the $10 today. And we do the same thing with our time. An hour of my life tomorrow feels really valuable. An hour of my life in six months? Sure. We just kind of throw it away. You're absolutely right. This is coming down to how do you judge whether to say yes or no to things? Where do the scales tip? And I think that most of us probably don't have a framework, or at least don't start off with a framework of what is the process by which I make decisions that will take time in my life? Yes, that's a great way to put it, is that you need to have a process or a strategy for how will I decide what I do. So I can give you a few ideas on that. First, one of the things I try to help work with people on is to develop a values-based schedule. So allowing your values and priorities to dictate your schedule rather than your schedule to dictate your life. So you can start with just writing down what is important to you. What is it that you really want to focus on? And then in another column, write down all the things that you're doing and see where is their overlap? Where are there things that you're doing that really don't align with your values? And if you don't mind sharing, we were talking beforehand about how you've articulated this and how it's changed some of the things that you did. But do you mind sharing the list of the four things that are important for you in what you do? We were talking about advertisements, mm -hmm. right? We're talking about that, yeah, we started out with doing ads on the show. And yeah, I, I might in the future, but it, it took a lot of time. And I was reaching out to potential advertisers and emailing back and forth and creating ads and putting them in the show. And I was thinking, what's the return on investment here? You know, I, and I would only I would only reach out to advertisers that were that I thought were kind of cool and really jive with the show. It was, uh, you know, definitely people reach out like, mm, no, 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 I'm not good with that, which I guess, I guess kind of goes into the thing you're talking about. And I thought, yeah, you know, do I want to be spending my time doing this? Because it took a lot of time, you know, you send out invoices and you have to send out follow-up invoices and I thought, okay, financially I do all right, got health insurance can pay the bills, right? mm -hmm. <laughs> doing, doing okay. Why am I doing this? What is the reason for that? And one was, I thought, well, when you hear an ad on the show, it sort of adds legitimacy to it. You know, it's like, oh, wow, this is a sponsored show. It's not hard to do that. You know, <laughs> I want to actually look under the hood. And that actually set me down this road over, it was really several months of trying to figure out what are the things that are important to me in life and work. And so I came up with four things. I love these. I love these. I definitely want to want to steal some of these. Well, yeah, you can have them. Yeah. <laughs> what are the important foundations in my life? And number one is to spark joy. Spark joy in the lives of others. And whether that was seeing a patient, which is hard, you know, in the emergency department, whether that is with my family, whether that is with myself, spark joy. Be present. Be present as much as possible. And whether that, you know, a lot of meditation, but bringing that awareness out into the rest of my life, be present with my family, even goes to, in my office, there's these big glass doors. And if ever a kid knocks on that, no matter what I'm doing, unless it's, you know, something that's, I can't, can't wait, pause what I'm doing because being present there, that is a top priority being present. So spark joy, be present, be of service. And that's one thing I see with this is I, with this show is I want to be of service to the community of listeners mm -hmm. and facilitate awesomeness. That's just kind of like this general, I don't know. <laughs> if you listen to the new stimulus intro, which you actually haven't heard yet because it's uh, kind of post-dates when we're recording the show. It's kind of like, yes, that's just like awesome. <laughs>
I had a uh, kind of an interesting experience with um, there's a, a guy who named Dan Dworkis. So he has a podcast called The Emergency Mind. I interviewed him. And that's going to come out after you and I publish this, but he does exactly what I do. So in one way, he could be a competitor. But I'll tell you, I love that guy mm -hmm. and I love what He's he great. does. Yeah. So what is my mission here? Do I try to compete with someone who is doing the same thing I'm doing or do I facilitate what he's doing because he's awesome? This is not a zero sum game. Life is not a zero sum game. Some people see it as it and I personally have seen it as a zero sum game and that just makes you feel crappy. Mm -hmm. If you don't see it as a zero sum game, then it's easy to facilitate awesomeness. So any podcaster like medical podcast or whatever that comes like seeking advice or whatever you know even though they are potential competitors like you know my main job is medical podcasting i will always help them and help uplift them because because what they're doing is awesome and i want to facilitate awesomeness so spark joy be present facilitate awesomeness and be of service and nowhere in there was have more ads in your podcast. <laughs> That's kind of sort of a roundabout yeah. answer to your question. But, you know, there will be business opportunities that come out of this podcast and that's fine. And I probably will have ads in the future and it will help to bring about some of those things. It will help to facilitate awesomeness. It will help to be of service. But right now, wasn't needed and wasn't part of those four things. So spark joy, be present, facilitate awesomeness and be of service. That is the mission. And that is how I guide yes or no decisions. For example, uh, just dude, this is the longest ass answer to any question. <laughs> oh my God. I used to say no to almost any speaking engagement because I just didn't want to take the time to do it. Now I say yes more because I have a message that I want to give. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that message, it's the stuff that we talk about on the show and it's, you know, very specific things, but it aligns with the four pillars that I use to hold up my life and make decisions. Long answer. I love that. And the way it ties in is because the initial problem was you were thinking, why am I spending all this time making invoices, sending it, tracking down the vendors or the advertisers and things like that. And so that time pressure is what forced you to crystallize your vision and your values. Yes. And that's a great practical example of how you can use it to say, okay, this thing that I'm doing that I don't enjoy is not really in line with my values. Now, let's say your value was you were in a different place in your life and you say, I really want to make as much money as I can to put my kids through college or for this purpose. I have been in that place. Right, in my exactly. Life. Yeah. Or to pay down my medical debt. Then you might have said, no, this is worth my time. Getting the advertisers and getting that additional income in order to pay down my medical debt is worth my time. But the only way to make that decision is if you understand your values and what's important to you at that time in life. Because as we've said, your values will change over, over your lifetime. And if you don't, dear listener, have a great list like Rob does, then another framework <laughs> that you can think about or use as a starting point is a Japanese concept called ikigai, which is the idea, if you can visualize with me, four overlapping circles. And their circles are what you're good at, what the world needs, what you love, and ideally what you can be paid for. And the thinking is that in the overlap, the center of all those four circles is where you will have a meaningful, rewarding, sustainable type of work or things that you do. So one way that you can use this practically is write down, again, all the things you do. You're on the sepsis committee. You're on the admissions committee. You're doing this community service. You're doing your kid's little league. And then think about where does it overlap with those circles? And they were, again, what you're good at, what the world needs, what you love, and what you can be paid for. So say you coach your kid's little league baseball. I think little league is baseball, right? I'm not very little good at the sports. Baseball, yes. <laughs> so let's say you coach your, your kids' little league baseball and you're good at it. They need it. You love it. You're not paid for it. Okay. Well, it overlaps with three circles. So I think about this in terms of are things overlapping with at least three circles and maybe some places to call things from your list, from your plate are things that are only overlapping with one or two. 
unless they're very strategic things such as, you know, I have to log certain hours or I have to do certain paperwork. I don't love it, but it's just part of the job. But for other things that are optional, looking at it through that framework can help you figure out, okay, this is what I want to keep on my plate and this is what I want to get rid of from my plate. Ikigai is, I think, a place to get to. Sometimes you just got to eat it. Sometimes you just got to eat the one, <laughs> you know? And usually that's the money part. Right. And, you know, you're doing things, you know, okay, hopefully you're good at it. Hopefully it gives service to the world. Like this talk about medicine or let's talk about, you know, being a great manager of a team or whatever. These are things that kind of satisfy a lot of this, but you know, sometimes, you know, you're not living in the lofty space and it's just, okay, I'm in the one circle for now, right. but how am I going to get to the overlap to be the center of that Venn diagram? Exactly. So I think of, you know, imagine in your head, a plate with lots and lots of stuff on it, whether it's food or just stuff, whatever it is. If you think about that image, the only way to get more time or have less sense of just chaos is either take things off your plate or shrink each individual item on your plate. And that's where efficiency comes in. So imagine, for example, you have an eight-hour day and you, for every 60 minutes, instead of spending 60 minutes on it, you were able to shrink it to 45 minutes. Now, this doesn't work for a shift. You can't just like work extra hard and then leave two hours early. But for all the other things that we do, say an hour's worth of email, if you can go full on, full out and shrink it to 45 minutes, then by the end of an eight hour day, you've now saved two extra hours, two extra hours. That's huge. So efficiency is in the small things, but it adds up over time. So first start out with the big things, like what doesn't even need to be on my plate, but then looking at each individual thing, how can you shrink it? And a great way to start with that, and I'm happy to share this for you to put in the show notes, is to do an inventory of your time. For a whole week, log in everything that you do. Because what has been found, and there's a lot of great books on this, but what's been found is that we overestimate what we, the time we spend on certain things, and we underestimate the time we spend on other things. So if I just asked you straight up, hey, how much TV do you watch? You might estimate ah, two hours a week. And then if you actually log it, you may find, oh, wow, I'm actually spending 10 hours a week watching TV. Well, there's eight hours that are just going into the void somewhere. Or how much time do you spend with your kids? Often people underestimate this. They think, man, I'm not spending any time with my kids. And when they actually add it up, they are spending time with their kids. So you can't know where your time is going unless you actually look at it. So those are two easy tips for, for looking at what's on your plate by doing an inventory and then shrinking each item on your plate by working efficiently, which we'll talk about more in detail. And you know, it's interesting because when I work with people, often they find, oh yeah, I have this on my plate. Why am I even doing this? And the reasons that we're doing things, they're often complex, but one great tool that I've found, and I want to test this out on you. Okay, Rob? Okay. In All live, right. All right. live, Full color, <laughs> full technicolor here. We're going to test it out on the air. Surprise on me. Surprise. All right, here we go. Here we go. And it's a, a method called the five whys. And this is used in industry and business. I think it was first used in the Toyota factory to say, okay, we've got this problem. This you know widget that we're making isn't being made right. Well, what's the problem? Well, this machine part A over here is broken. So you might think, all right, well, let's replace machine part A. But then if you ask, okay, why is machine A broken? It may be that, oh, it's because machine B is running too slowly. So why is machine B running too slowly? Oh, it's because we didn't grease the wheels of conveyor belt C. And so if all you did is replace machine A, it wouldn't actually get at the underlying problem, which is the greasing the wheels of conveyor belt C. And the same is true if we come with this problem of I have too much on my plate and we never ask the deeper why questions, then we don't truly understand how to fix it. And I find this is most helpful in understanding our motivation. So for example, let's, let's go through this. You have the stimulus podcast, okay? And just short answers, you know, not just like in a sentence or two. Why are you doing stimulus? I am doing this show because for years I have felt driven to have a conversation uh, for, you know, first among the medical community, but now among the larger community 
about things outside of clinical medical practice that I think are important to thriving in work and life. So Rob, tell me a little more. Why do you want to have that conversation about important things to help people thrive? Because I had so many struggles, especially with work in my career, with stress and burnout and not necessarily having a direction or intent with what I was doing, that when I started you know, studying these things and learning these things and applying these things, found great benefit and, and improvement and betterment across all categories. So it sounds like you want to help other people who are having similar struggles. Is that right? Yes. So why yes. do you want to help other people who are struggling? I'm trying to think of the underlying motivation here. And I'm just, I'm going back to when I was, you know, going into medicine, even starting in medicine, that there were two pathways that I was going to take. It, I was either going to be a physician or I was going to be a teacher, like a true, you know, with a, like a master's in education and be a true teacher. And I, even within medicine, I've, that has been the thing that I've always loved the most is teaching. And I'm trying to think about what is it about teaching? Because mm -hmm. that'll be my that, next question. <laughs> next that, why? That I find rewarding. And I, and I, and now I go back to when I was a teenager and I would teach karate and I hadn't even thought about this. I loved that experience. It was hard and I often got it wrong, but just seeing that progression and the light in the eyes and the betterment of another person, it was intensely gratifying. So you're doing stimulus for the joy of seeing other people be able to overcome the struggles, some of which you've struggled with, by sharing the knowledge and the conversation. And that's a great motivation. And that's probably close to the bedrock. It might be hard to get deeper than that. Jeez, you're giving me chills. That's, uh, <laughs> it's funny. I, I had never thought about why I was doing the show. You know, I've got right. those four, yeah. I guess, pillars or whatever we thought about before. It's like, oh, here, here's a dry thing. But I just, I felt so compelled to do this show that I couldn't not do it. And it was mm -hmm. just like an obsession for even a year before it launched. It's just you know, thinking of the name, thinking about what I was going to do, thinking about what was going to be the tone. It, it was like this, I don't know, this is a horrible image, like this alien that was going to pop out of my <laughs> it, it Something that was going to be born. The stimulus alien. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, all right. Keep, keep going. I don't know where this is going, but I love it. So stimulus is something that takes a lot of time for you, but it fundamentally taps into your desire to help others and it brings you joy. This is something you should keep on your plate right? Clearly. Now, yes. a lot yes. of times, though, when we delve into those five whys, there's a lot of mixed motivation. Some things that maybe we do for, for what I'll call joy and growth or finding meaning or things that are in line with our values and other things that we do out of negative motivation. Things that, for example, if we're honest with ourselves, we say, well, I'm doing this because I need to prove myself. Or I'm doing this because I'm afraid that if I don't, I'll be perceived as less of less of uh, academic, less effective, less successful, or whatever it may be. Or for example, people who are trying to lose weight out of a sense of, or get more in shape out of a sense of guilt or shame. And one of the things I teach a lot in my class is that we want to understand our motivation so that we can free it from trying to motivate ourselves out of a sense of guilt or shame. Shame is not a good motivator. It works for a while, but then it backfires and it causes us to feel burnt out and just tired and exhausted. So as much as we can understand, okay, look at each of those things that you wrote down that are on your plate and really ask those five whys and get to the fundamental bedrock of why are you doing these things? Because then we can figure out, all right, this I'm truly doing out of a sense of needing to prove myself, needing to silence the voices of imposterism, or needing to show that I'm capable of it. Well, maybe that's something we can get rid of. Whereas the things that we're truly doing because we love it, because it brings us joy, because it brings us meaning, because it allows us to serve others or facilitate awesomeness, those are the things that we want to keep on our plate. Since we're kind of getting personal here, I will sometimes make decisions or do things that in my mind, I think I don't want to do that. And I have resistance to doing it, even though I think, ah, oh, that could be a good thing or that could lead to some growth. And I think, 
I don't definitely don't want to do this. And I decide, all right, then I'm going to do it. And I don't, I'm not sure what that, like, how does that fit in? Well, I think that gets to being able to separate ourselves from our thoughts. Because often when we'll think a thought, whether it's I want to do this or I don't, or I'm not good enough to do that, we fuse with the thought. It's called cognitive fusion. And we automatically believe that our thoughts are true. And without examining them and stepping back from them, then we're kind of at the mercy of our thoughts and our feelings. But if you can step back, this is comes back to stoicism and creating distance between ourself and our thoughts and recognizing that our thoughts are in our control. Instead of being subject to our thoughts, we can be the ones who control them. So understanding our thoughts, and there's actually a great framework that helps explain a lot of how we either overwork and overcommit or how we sometimes procrastinate. And that is called self-worth theory. We introduced it briefly in the procrastination podcast, but the idea is that we tend to get our sense of worth and value from our abilities or our accomplishments, our performance, all of those things. And so in the procrastination, we talked about it that if we are afraid we're going to fail, then we may withhold effort or procrastinate. Put things off to the last minute. That way, if I don't do a good job, well, it's not my fault. I didn't get to it till the night before, right? But that was a choice to not get to it till the night before. But it actually also explains the opposite, which is when we overwork, we make sure that everything is perfect. We overstrive, we overcommit because we have tied our self-worth to what we accomplish. And that can become a tyranny because then we are constantly plagued with, I'm not doing enough. I need to do more. And what's really fascinating is when we can ask ourselves to be open to the idea that our self-worth is just set. It's just there. We just have it. There's nothing we can do to increase it or decrease it. That that can actually free us up to then be able to say, yes, I'm doing this and I'm overworking because I'm trying to prove myself or I'm trying to get over my imposterism. One of the faculty members who's very successful that I've worked with for a number of months, we realized after a while that the reason he was so busy was not a time management problem. He was really good at using his calendar and all of these things. Really, it was because he was overcommitted out of the need to prove that he belonged, to prove that he was doing enough. And once we got over that, then he was able to free up his calendar 25% at least. You're talking about self-worth being tied to accomplishments. And the audience of this show overwhelmingly falls prey to that. And I include myself in this because we are selected from a very early age right. to tie our, our worth to our accomplishments. I mean, this is a very accomplished group. Yes. And there, you know, you kind of have this the, like this ego projection of what you should look like. And, and, you know, you get these awards and you get accepted to X, Y, Z and all these kinds. And everyone tells you, oh, you're so great. You're so great. You're so great. And I think that that probably gets hardwired in your hippocampus. It you know? does. And it does. I still need constant vigilance pushing back against this. And you know what? I don't always succeed. It's easy to say, well, you know, your self-worth is tied to your accomplishments. And so detach your self-worth from your accomplishments. I mean, how do you do that? I think it's a process and it's a constant, like you said, constant vigilance of our thoughts. But some thought experiments that you could do would be, let's take stimulus since we've been talking about that. Let's say nobody listens to this episode, like not a single person. Got nobody it. listens Perfect. ever again. <laughs> do you have any less value? Like if I hold your soul up to the universe... Do you have any less value because nobody listened to your podcast? All right. There's two aspects to this. And there's because I, I feel two things. I, my amygdala feels one thing and then my prefrontal cortex goes to work. So when I see that, and there are some episodes that, because this is real, that is like, you know what? I don't really care about that. And there are some that go bananas. I'm like, wow, I can't believe that many people download that. It's surprising. So the ones that nobody listens to because it's real. I think my visceral reaction is, oh, I must suck a little bit. So I must suck a little bit. Let me pause you there. When yeah. you sit in that feeling of, oh, I must suck a little bit, which is, you know, yeah. not a fun feeling. What is yeah. the thought that's creating that feeling? Okay. God dang it, Christina. All right. So <laughs> it's a sense of worth. 
Not what is even the show worth. Yeah. It's just what, what am, am I worth? So when you I have worth, that, yeah. like, oh, if this feels like crap feeling, if you could crystallize, what is the thought that's reeling in your head that makes you feel that? Um, the thought is you are worth less than you think. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. What you did just now is called stoic meditation. It's saying, what are the thoughts that are going on in my head that are causing these feelings? And there may be other thoughts for other things. Or it might be, for example, nobody likes me. Everyone thinks I'm a horrible podcaster. Whatever I'm producing is not worth anything. And the problem is then we sit with those thoughts, we internalize them, we create the assumption that this thought is true, and then we end up concluding the same thing. We conclude, yep, my worth is tied to my production or my performance, and then that loop continues. I want to take this to the second part, because you mentioned stoicism, and that has been kind of the path out of that you know, over the past, I don't know, decade or so. And it's the Ozymandias exercise where an intrepid explorer came across a pedestal of Ozymandias, the great emperor, and it said, behold my works, ye mighty, and despair. And then he looks out and all he sees is desert mm. because all that Ozymandias had ruled and looked over is now desert and forgotten and no one even knows who he was. That yeah. can sound a little bit nihilistic, but it gives me a sense on the kind of the like the cosmic level of, you know, in the big picture, that does not matter very much. It is what is the work and it is and is it aligning with my values? But it is a constant struggle, right? It's 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 a pullback. The you know the limbic system which I'm, I'm guessing, or the hippocampus or amygdala or whatever, that, that part is always there, pulling, pulling, pulling. Yes, absolutely. And that's why we have to use our prefrontal cortex to consciously undo and unravel each time we notice ourselves making that connection of, I did well, therefore I have more value, or I didn't do well, therefore I have less value. And we have to step back and say, wait, wait, wait a second. <laughs> what did I just do right there? Because the more we can free ourselves from that, then we're free to work purely out of motivation of joy, meaning, service, etc. And we're also going to avoid doing things out of shame, fear, and guilt. And I love that Ozymandias quote. I kind of want to put that up in my house, maybe over my cat litter box or something. <laughs> but um, that's a great way to remind yourself. The other concept from Stoicism is the idea of Stoic indifference meaning we should be indifferent to things that make no difference or be indifferent to anything other than the pursuit of virtue was what the Stoics would have said. Does this affect me? Does this affect my ability to pursue my four pillars of facilitating awesomeness, being of service, etc.? No. If no one listens to your podcast, not really. It doesn't affect you. So consciously untangling that assumption is an ongoing life practice, but it is life-changing. How do you guide your clients and maybe even yourself about should? Mm. I should yeah. do this, right? Like that's another strong drive that gets you into too much on my plate. Yes. That's kind of, it's almost, it's almost like a guilt thing or a, it is. I guess like a or self-worth thing. Why, like, why should you? Who's saying that? Who's saying who should to keep, you? Who is the person who is issuing all these should mandates? Absolutely. <laughs> well, a couple things. One, I would say we need to reclaim and maintain agency over our choices. And we've talked about this in an early podcast, that when we say things like, I have to do this, or I should do that, then we're giving up control outside of our circle of control. Instead, everything we do, we need to own and say, I choose to do this. So let's say you have something that you're thinking, well, I should do this. I mean, first of all, you can just examine logically, really, should you? Who, who said you should? And then you can ask yourself, well, is it really true? Is it really true? Ask yourself those motivation questions. Why am I telling myself this story that I should do this? There's no should. It just isn't there. And then you can invite yourself to say, well, how do I feel when I tell myself this story that I should do this. And often people will say, yeah, I feel burdened. I feel heavy. I feel 
frustrated. I feel powerless. I get that learned helplessness. And then how would you feel if you abandoned the thought or just unwelcomed the thought from your mind that I should do this? And people feel lighter, freer, more engaged, more creative, more excited. So just abandoning that thought, inviting your mind to say, hey, what if I chose a different thought can be freeing. There's good shoulds. There are some shoulds that you want to do. I should clean out that dirty wound. Uh, (laughs) I should look both ways before crossing the street. I think what we're talking about here are the internal shoulds about how you're feeling, what you're thinking. I shouldn't be feeling angry, anxious right now. Mm. I should feel grateful, mm-hmm. right? And what, you know, we're talking about wanting to change your mental frame, right? That's not a, not a bad thing. I mean, working, the, a lot of this show is about creating a positive mental state. But the negative part, and this is in, this is like the part of nonviolent communication, right? The violence to yourself yes. comes at the moment of shooting a thought yeah. or shooting an emotion. What's buried in that should is we're, we're talking about like internal shoulds are a judgment. They are guilt, blame, shame at a minimum. Like you are laying guilt and shame at yourself for having a thought or a feeling. You know, something in that singular moment you can't control. You cannot control a thought that arises. And that's your own internal voice. I should be different. I shouldn't be having these thoughts. Should is you at war with yourself. Yes. Or the idea that this should be easy. I should be able to do all this. I should be able to manage everything on my plate. And what if we abandon that idea? What if we abandon the concept that it should be easy? Because it's not easy. That's the reality. And I think the way in which should comes up as a problem is when we think it should be this way and reality is a different way. And so we're banging our heads against reality and reality always wins. So too much on my plate, there's a lot, there's a lot to it, right? There's a, you know, a lot of things that, that happen that we say yes to too many things, right? Got a lack of direction, love too many things, which is, I don't know that actually that that is always too much on my plate. I think that's probably lower down on it. Um, you know, underestimation of how long things will take. Sense of obligation, I think is huge. Need to prove ourselves and manage self-worth. I think that that's a lot of what we've been talking about at the end here. That's the should, I should, I should. That's the work. That one right there, I think is where the like the the deep work and meditation stoicism and and do those exercises i think as you were talking about it's like oh okay like well what's the trick what's the hack <laughs> it's a constant process and it's a constant vigilance it about is. being aware of this and that is how you take that chaff off your plate yeah. and end up having the wheat and get to your icky guy yes what is the trick how can i give you two more hours in your day by transforming your mind that's how you do it. All right, let's take a break for a moment and talk about who we sponsor for this episode. How about that, Christina? I love it. <laughs> we, I love it. Yeah. Today's show is in support of I am ALS. Many of us have been touched by ALS in one way or another. Personally, my childhood neighbor died from that in the prime of her life. Listeners for you, maybe a family member, friend. Maybe a patient has had it. Maybe, maybe you have it. And check this out, Christina. We think of ALS as rare. Not a lot of people have it at once, but it's actually not rare because mm-hmm. the lifetime risk is reported to be around 1 in 300 to 1 in 400. Just because you know, the disease span is so short that not many people have it at once. So Lou Gehrig diagnosed the ALS 80 years ago. And... Only a few treatments have been approved by the FDA for this. What would be your guess as to how long they increase lifespan, someone with ALS? So that we're 80 years now. We can sequence the genome of any organism on the planet. What do you think? Wow, I guess maybe five years? Three months. Oh, man. Three months. Yeah. But, you know, kind of on the precipice of some pretty amazing therapies. Three months, that's like a margin of error when compared to advances therapies for like cancer, HIV. So IMALS are supporting research, patient navigation, legislation, and to that point. So it used to be that ALS patients 
had to wait for six months after diagnosis to get social security benefits, right? There's usually a gap, you know, you apply and then there's a gap, but you know, this is a rapidly progressive disease and a lot of them died before that six month window. So I am ALS successfully fought to erase that six month gap and activate immediate benefits, right? That's just one small thing that they've done. I mean, it's a very, it's like this grassroots organization, nimble and just a, a, a taxi areas that are gonna have the maximum benefit. It's a big nut to crack. Every little bit makes a difference. Check out our stimulus donation page. There's a link in the show notes. And to help crack the nut, we will match donations up to $5,000. Boom. Let's get back to it. Next up, Christina, I want to talk about busy. Busy. Do your clients ever use that word, busy, to say, I'm just too busy? You know, busy is like amateur level. It's usually super busy or crazy busy. Crazy busy. There's got to be an adverb in there. Let me ask you about this. I heard years ago, a uh, great reframing of that word, or maybe just a different way to look at it. Cause I used to say, I used to say, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy, busy. When you say, I'm so busy, you imply that you have no control yes. over what's on your plate. I still try almost say it, but I try to limit using the word busy. And what do you say instead? So someone says, Hey, how you doing? I'll say great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause that happens all the time. You walk by someone in the hall. Hey, how's it going? Busy. How are you? Super busy. Oh, I got a cool project I'm on. So I'll try to say That's it's great. the, uh, I tried to, I, I've mentioned this guy on the show so many times and I actually told him I had my med school reunion last year over zoom. And I saw him again. And I told him that I tell this story, the Joe Schneider story. Whenever someone asked Joe Schneider, he was in my med school class, how he was doing. He always said, fantastic. And that would even be on call at 2 a.m. And we were covered with like blood, vomit, feces, like everything. I said, Joe, how you doing? Fantastic. Fantastic. I said, Joe, I know you're not. You say, well, you know what? If I don't say it, I'm never going to believe it. Mm. And so I, that's, uh, that's kind that's, of my approach to, to busy, except the opposite. That's a good way to reframe it. But this definitely is a, a common problem where people feel like they spend all their day being busy, they've put in the hours, but then at the end of the day, they haven't really accomplished anything. And to tackle this one, the first strategy is, you know, do all of the above. Look at what's on your plate and take things off it strategically. Then do a time inventory to see where your time is going. But then the next thing that you can try and play with is to look at your work as what type of work is it that I'm doing? If it's a shift, you're there on shift. You're mostly going to be dictated by what's going on. But when you have all the other things, we tend to just kind of float through the day without necessarily a lot of structure or strategy to it. I like to break up the work into deep work and shallow work. Deep work is going to be the things that require a lot of focus, blocks of time, and really need me to put some creative energy into it, or at least some high degree of focus. To do deep work well, I need to have a block of time, at least maybe 45 minutes for me, ideally an hour, hour and a half, two hours. So I have to clear my schedule. And then I like to clear my physical space. This is harder if you're working from home and you have kids in the environment, but clearing your physical space so that you don't have distractions. The most important, well, second to last important one is then clearing your digital space. When we are doing deep work, sometimes we like it. We're really into the project we're working on. But other times, especially for writing projects or other things that are difficult, our minds will gravitate immediately to any distraction. So if your phone goes off, you're like, oh, thank goodness, a distraction. Oh, thank goodness, I don't have to think about this difficult thing I'm doing for a couple seconds. So clearing our digital space means silencing and putting away our phones, even having the phone on the table off can uh, reduce our ability to do complicated tasks. So you turn your phone off, but you have it on the table and it's still a distraction. It's still a distraction, even if it's off. Yes, because we're so addicted to our phones at this point that even having it present can be a distraction. So it's kind of like Scott Carney was talking about we um, a couple episodes ago when we we're talking, he, he was talking about the wedge and how you and how you cultivate that space between stimulus and response. And we were talking about creating a wedge with social media. And he's like, "Oh, that 
you'll never win. Just <laughs> just delete it because you'll never beat the yes. neuroscientist making you addicted to yeah. that. Just delete it. It's so fascinating. And this is a great little exercise. I did this the other night. I put my phone away in my bag and then I was working on a paper and every now and again, I'd feel my hand reaching to pick up oh. my phone and look at it to check Facebook or to check my email or check my messages. And every time I felt my hand moving to reach for my phone, I thought to myself, what am I asking my phone to do right now? Am I asking my phone to provide cognitive respite from the difficult work that I'm doing? <laughs> am I asking my phone to stave off loneliness or frustration? Or am I asking my phone to be a companion, to be my entertainment? And it was just a great exercise. But clearer digital space. Deep work. Set yourself up for success. Block out your time. You know, you like at least an hour. I, I, I feel at least an hour, may, maybe even more to really get into that flow state. Cannot have a distraction. Once you have a distraction, you reset. So that is deep work. But there's this book by Jack Kornfeld called After the Ecstasy, the laundry. And so <laughs> you've got to do your shallow work too, right? Right. So how do you put that in? You have to schedule it in. The way I structure my day when I'm not working in the ER, I schedule blocks of time to do deep work. And I put in my calendar what I'm going to do during that time, whether it's here's the time I'm going to prepare for this podcast with Rob, or here's the time I'm going to work on this PowerPoint. I'll put that in my calendar. But then I schedule in shallow work breaks. Because a lot of times, if we don't schedule in time for email, it will just encroach on our deep work time. And then we'll find ourselves flustered with never having really done either task well. So I will block off time for all the, what one of my uh, folks who took my class called backstage time. This is where we do all the, you know, your charts backstage or your prep for your patients coming in the next day or your emails or logging your duty hours or all of those administrative tasks. You have to create time for them. And I like to chunk it so that I say, okay, I've got 30 minutes to do my email. I'm going to bang through these emails, line them up and knock them down and get them done as quickly as possible. Because if you don't put constraints around the time, then you could spend four hours doing those emails, crafting beautiful Pulitzer Prize winning emails when really a couple sentences would be sufficient. Another important point of shallow work is having a system. Whenever people have a shallow work problem, the answer is always a system. So for, you know, email, for all of these things, because what happens is if you're trying to do your deep work and then a thought comes up like, oh, I've got to go buy bread, I've got to buy potatoes, then that thought is like a live ping pong ball bouncing around in your head. Now, if you think another thought of, oh, I've got to send that email to Susie. Well, now you've got two ping pong balls bouncing around in your head, and that's reducing your ability to focus on the deep work that you're doing. So the answer is to have a system. Whenever you have that ping pong thought come up in your head, you have to have a place to put it. For me, I'm kind of old school, Gen X, and, and I just like my paper to-do list. So I have a to-do list at my desk where anything that comes up, I can cognitively offload it by writing it on a checklist. And there's been studies about this, that just writing it down then restores your ability to focus and do the more difficult tasks that you're working on. There's lots of different systems out there whether it's an app or just a Google Tasks or bullet journaling. A couple of my favorite apps or websites, which I don't get any money from, are Trello and Todoist. So those are very easy to use ones if you're not used to using a to-do list. That's a great one if you want an app or a website. But the good old paper list works just as well. To that point, I was corresponding with a stimulus listener recently talking about kind of all of the things that we talk about and was getting into this particular point of, you know, like the bullet journals or the Todoist and said, you know, all right, so I feel like I've got too much to do. And then I've got this thing, which feels like another thing to do. And so I don't do it. I think about this like getting dressed in the morning. Yes, it takes a little bit of time, takes a couple minutes, but honestly, Getting dressed compared to walking out naked saves me a lot of trouble in the rest of my day. So yes, it might take five minutes to add things to your list, to cross them off, but ultimately it makes your life so much better. And it introduces a level of discipline and structure. And whenever we have structure and discipline in one area, that means more freedom in other areas. So if I am structured about knowing what I have to do, that frees me from the problem of, oh, I know there's something I'm supposed to do, but I can't remember what it was, that nagging feeling. 
Or because I have discipline and structure in my schedule, then I'm free to fully focus just on this podcast right now because I'm not worried about all the other things I have to do because I know I have a system and I know that they'll get done. So yes, it adds a few minutes to your day, but ultimately it makes your life so much better. And the way that I I have my calendar always open, but I'll make sure the night before, before I'm going to bed, I'll look at my calendar so I know, okay, what am I doing tomorrow? I'll look at it throughout the week. I'll make sure, am I overloading myself in different areas or how am I going to fit this in, you know, with the moving pieces of shifts and meetings and other things. And we don't, many of us don't work nine to five jobs in the office. Some people do, but many of us have shifts on the evenings or weekends. And sometimes we use that as an excuse to then, well, because my schedule's not regular, it's just all going to go to pot. But we just have to say, okay, my schedule's just not regular. I'm going to fit the pieces in like a like a moving Tetris puzzle, and that's just how my life is going to be. All right, I've saved the best for last, or maybe it's the worst for last, depending on your perspective. <laughs> email, email. And, you know, and listeners, if you contact me through the blog contact form, some of you have found, I get back to you pretty quickly. If it's email, forget it. It could be weeks or months or never. <laughs> so Christina, I am drowning in a sea of emails. And it's not, I, I'm not like in the thousand area, but the inbox is it like sands through the hourglass. It's always <laughs> building up. Is getting through this a deep work problem? Is it a shallow work problem? I mean, it feels kind of like a shallow work problem for most of this stuff, but then, you know, then I'll like leave one sort of like as a task, like, oh, I'll get back to that. And then I look at it 15 times mm -hmm. and never actually get back to it or do it. And then I'll like forget some stuff. And, and I know you need to have a system. I have not found a system that I, I know there's a lot of systems at work. I've never found one that I actually do. Yes. And this is another one like getting dressed in the morning that takes a few minutes, but it's totally worth it. And the tricky thing about email is you're exactly right. Some email is shallow and some email is really deep work. If you send me a paper and say, hey, read this, tell me what you think. Well, that's going to require some time. And email is really the bane of people's existence. You can get so much freedom in your life by managing your inbox. So here's a system. And you're right. There's many systems. I have modified David Allen's system from getting things done. First of all, you need to schedule time in to do your email, right? Otherwise, it's just going to spread in like a like a virus. Is it too soon? It's going to spread like a virus to the rest of, of your day. So when you're going through your email, we've blocked out, all right, these 30 minutes, I'm doing my email maybe three times a day for 30 minutes. If it's less than two minutes, if it'll be a quick response or it'll take you less than two minutes, then do it. So less than two minutes, do it. If you can delegate it to anyone else, <laughs> delegate it. <laughs> As long as they're going to do a good enough job, too. So you can make it their problem? Well, you know, if it's not something that you need to do, then let someone else do it. If there's somebody else, if you have an administrative assistant or somebody who can support okay. you in that. Or, you know, if I get an invitation to give a talk and I think, you know what, one of my junior faculty might really sink their teeth into this. Maybe this will be something that would be great for them and not necessarily something that I need to do at this point in my career. I'll give it to them. So there's, you know, some synergy there. So do delegate, delete. You want to get things out of your inbox because if you have your inbox with 15,000 messages, that's when you're running into the problem of, shoot, have I missed something? Have I responded to everything? What you want to do is really keep only things that are active in your inbox. So do delegate, delete. And then if you come across something that is going to require deep work, like if you write to me and say, hey, can you write me a letter of recommendation? Well, that's going to require some deep work. Then I will either flag it or put it in a folder for deep work and put it on my to-do list to do at another time because that I'm not going to do that during my shallow email time. So do delegate, delete, defer, and then also unsubscribe. Your future self will thank you. Instead of deleting every single day those daily emails from Bed Bath & Beyond or whatever it is that you're getting, <laughs> unsubscribe. Now, a couple other things. If you're trying to keep your inbox small and only with the things that are active for you to do, that means you have to file away other messages somewhere. So create a file system that will work for you. Again, you don't want something with like three layers of files deep that's going to be more work than it's worth. But for each project, for example, I have a projects folder. For each project, I have a folder for emails that I need to keep that I really can't delete. For each time I'm traveling or speaking, I'll have a folder for 
know, this is 2021-06-10. That's the date. And stimulus podcast with Rob. And I'll put an email. If I need to save an email, I'll put it in there. Now for this, we don't necessarily have to save emails, but if I'm traveling, then I'll put my flight, my registration, and my hotel. Otherwise, you find yourself searching your email for, shoot, which airline am I flying? Is it Seattle? Is it Portland? Where am I going? And you just have all of this stuff in your email instead of if you have it in that folder. So create a folder system that works for you. Now, Rob, here's a million dollar question. Because you're thinking, wait a second, I can see the beads of sweat forming. (laughs) You're thinking, (laughs) wait a second, how do I get my inbox to be only my active emails if I have 15,000 emails in my inbox, right? I know the answer to this because I've heard you say it before. Do you wanna wanna give it? Make a file that says emails to this date, select all and put every one of them into that box. Yes, yes. I cannot tell you how amazing it feels when you do that. So save maybe the top 100, 200 that you're actually going to go deal with and use those to practice this method of the do, delegate, delete, defer for deep work, unsubscribe. And everything else, I know that you're worried, what if there's something important in one of those emails? You don't have to delete it. Just put it in a file that says inbox prior to whatever date you're doing it. And that way you can focus on the things that are recent, practice your new system, And I can't tell you how many people will randomly email me and say, hey, I watched this video that you did about email and it changed my life. It is life changing. Okay, so I'm I'm actually, I've got my email box open at the bottom of it. And I've had this since my birthday. I have a gift card from my mom, an Amazon gift card. She gave me for my birthday. Thank you, mom. And I've just had that in my inbox. I haven't done anything with it. And I've just got this gift card sitting there. I said, I don't you know, nothing that I really want to buy or anything. It's just, but it's kind of taking up space. And every time I go in there, I see it and oh, it takes a little bit of attention. It takes a I'm little like, bit of your focus. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, all right, what do I do with that? You open it up and you click add to my Amazon account. Then it will automatically add to your Amazon account. You can delete the email. And next time you purchase something from Amazon, they'll automatically apply it. It's like magic. Boom. One email down. <laughs> Took less than two minutes. So it's something that you should do right? If you're saying, okay, here's my email time. This will take less than two minutes. I'll do it. Listener Joe Halton, who's listening to this right now, sent me an email that on Deep Work, an interesting interesting video. Actually, I watched like the 10 seconds of it. It's something I want to watch. A YouTube video. It's Mm. like, hey, watch this. It's going to take time. Mm -hmm. And it's been sitting in my email, my inbox for a while. And I'm thinking, I don't really have a schedule for it or put it in there. So like, how do I deal with that? So first, let's be honest with yourself. Do you want to watch it? at some point in your life? I think I do. Okay. Because what I watch like, oh, there's some good stuff in there. Yeah. And Then I would create a folder for things to read or watch. So I have a folder when somebody sends me a paper and I'm like, yeah, there's a 50% chance I might want to because you sound like not totally sold that you want to watch it. Maybe. So let's say there's 50% chance. I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward. I'll fast forward through it. So here's what I would say. When I have something that I'm like, meh, 50% chance I want to read this or watch it, I'll put it in a folder for things that I will read if I have time. If I definitely want to watch this, let's say, or read this, I'm 100% want to do this. I just, it'll take more than two minutes. Then put it on your to-do list. Put it on your calendar. If you can put it on your calendar for the next couple days, or on your to-do list for the next couple days, then you could leave it in your inbox and just come to it later. If not, then you want to get it out of your inbox and put it in a to-do file, but then still add it to your list. Otherwise, your to-do file will grow and grow and grow and you'll never come back to it. So if you use that method, you can put it in your to-do file and then put time on your calendar that says go through to-do file or you know, if you want to get more granular, watch that video. But often if you just say go through to-do file, then you'll go through it and say, okay, these things are each going to take five to 15 to 30 minutes. And now I know I have time to do them. Christina, so many high yield tips in there. And th- thanks for a little bit of that psychotherapy earlier. That was, uh, <laughs> that was super fun. Always a delight to have you. Looking forward to the next time. Thank you so much. Rob, always a pleasure. Thank you. And that's it. That's it for today. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. And there you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you're interested in our IMALS fundraiser, there's a link to that in the show notes. You can subscribe to Stimulus in pretty much any podcatcher you use. And if it happens to be iTunes, 
throw down a review and rating. Now, I do read all the reviews as to potential guests, and I will say that if you have a request for a topic or a guest, the review section is not the place to put this. It's also not the place to seek your vengeance for not having that topic or guest. We got a bad review because we hadn't covered a particular topic with a particular guest, which is fine. I love requests, but that's not the proper channel. You can contact me through the contact form on the website. All right, until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.